Hey everybody, welcome to the 57th episode of the Intellectual Podcast. I'm your host Dave Dawson and I just want to say thank you to everybody who joins us to listen to our show. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to bring you fresh content every week and uh, if you're not listening, I've got nothing to do and I like having stuff to do, so thanks for joining us. And uh, please tell your friends, make sure you spread the word about the good work that we're doing here. At least I hope, I hope you think it's good work. I assume that you're coming back because it's good work. So I'm just going to go with the idea that it's good work. So uh, spread the word about the good work we're doing here at theintellectual.com. Specifically, this podcast, The Intellectual Podcast, my personal podcast on the network. And uh, yeah, so... Today, uh, we've got an interview that we had with Stephen L. Sears. Uh, Many of you may know him as a writer for Xena, uh, as well as many other projects. And we had a fascinating time talking with Stephen about how he got into the business of writing as he started out uh, wanting to be an actor and kind of stumbled into writing and became really a very successful writer uh, within the business. He still acts and he still does, he produces and he does a bunch of other things, but I really think storytelling is the thing he identifies with the most. And so it was, it was really fun to kind of sit down with him and really get to the meat of how that transition in his life happened from wanting to be an actor to being a writer to being a successful writer. And uh, he's in a bit of a transition himself now. He's writing novels and working on graphic novels and all sorts of other things outside of writing scripts for television and film. So, you know, I I just had a really great time interviewing him. Uh, Jessica Drain and Carla Van Wagner were also along for the interview. And, you know, we sat down with a guy in a Starbucks up in uh, the L.A. area, just hung out and had a really wonderful chat that ended up going pretty long uh, for our podcast minutes I think but it was just such a stimulating conversation you know we didn't want to stop so uh, this is a tremendous podcast to listen to especially if you're struggling uh, in the business or if you're just getting into the business and you're trying to figure out what to do how to move forward you know what's expected of you any of that sort of stuff Uh, Stephen really kind of opens up about how he approached everything how he made it work for himself and I think the key there is that he made it work for him and that's uh, a pretty good lesson for anybody to take away from this conversation so uh, sit back enjoy this conversation with Stephen and uh, just one thing to touch on if you are in the market for setting up a website for yourself or for your company uh, use hostgator.com that's who we use for the intellectual we're extremely happy with them they've got some absolutely outstanding uh, rates for services you can install a wordpress site you can build a site from scratch they've got all sorts of options and all sorts of software packages that you can get access to through their service and if you use the coupon code talk hard web when signing up for your service you'll get 25 percent off so check them out and use the coupon code talk hard web when ordering services from hostgator.com you'll get yourself a good discount and you'll be helping us out. So it's a win-win for everybody. And now sit back and enjoy this incredibly informative and 
enjoyable episode with Stephen L. Sears on the 57th episode of the Intellectual Podcast. Talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm. The Intellectual Podcast starts now. Okay, how are we doing here? How are we doing? You guys are good. Okay. Awesome. Okay, actually, you might be a little, little hot. For me, just tell me. Or can adjust. Good. Okay. Depends on which voice you want. I can give you my very white voice or my Don Knotts voice. It's up to you. <laughs> You're an actor. You can figure this I out. I can try something out. Used to be an actor. Now I'm only an actor in love. So, uh, Stephen Sears? Yes, right? indeed. Stephen L. Sears, technically. Stephen L. Sears, yeah. David S. Dawson, technically. <laughs> there you go. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, legally, I always make that distinction because yeah. there are other people in, in the, the business, business the and you have to register your name. Your name is your brand. Yep. It's your trademark. So I always, uh, um, it's kind of a running gag with people that I work with, especially publication companies and everything, that if they release anything that says Steve Sears or Stephen Sears, they get a very angry letter from me <laughs> because it does have to be Stephen L. Sears for legal reasons. Right. So, or Lord God of Hellfire. But Stephen L. Sears is easier to say, so we say with that. <laughs> so... We're, we're, we're sitting here in Starbucks with you. It's a little bit noisier than some of our other interviews, but that'll be, that'll be <laughs> It'll fine. It'll be all right. <laughs> you got a good, strong voice, so we'll be good. Thank you. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, kind of where you started with your career, and, uh, and we'll, <laughs> we'll kind of just kind of go from there. Um, okay. Well, I'll try to keep it to the rather short-end version of this. Oh, and there is no shortened version. Well, uh, <laughs> We got all the time in the yeah. world. <laughs> Maybe you do. Um, I was, uh, I grew up in a military family. Mm-hmm. So uh, every three years we transferred to another part of the world or another area. Uh, my dad went to Korea, went to Vietnam. I was in Fort Knox during the Vietnam era. And um, I had a great family. I don't have any angst about my family. You know, I don't have any issues there. Uh, they were really, my parents were absolutely wonderful. My, my brother and I, we were related. And um, <laughs> no, my brother's great. He and I just, we kind of joke about the fact we're so opposite. So, yeah. But um, uh, that background gave me a wide experience with many different things. Uh, my, my first language actually was German because we were stationed in Germany when I was in kindergarten. All my friends spoke German. And I really can't speak hardly any of it, but I still find it to be this incredibly sexy language now. It's like people talk about French as being the, the language of romance. To me, it's, you know, anything that sounds like you're invading Poland or something sounds great to me. Uh, but uh, so anyway, when my dad retired, we retired to St. Augustine, Florida, mm-hmm. to the nation's oldest city founded on September 8th, 1565 by Father Francisco Lopez de Mendoza and uh, Pedro Mendez de Avales. Uh, I was a historian for the city. I was going to say, do they require you to memorize all that to <laughs> yeah. live there? Yeah, you're, uh, you're given a whole questionnaire. But no, it's a lovely city. It's the, um, it's the oldest continuously inhabited European community. So the, lots of history. And I love history personally. So my high school years, my formative years, um, a lot of my close relationships were formed there. So when I finished high school, um, I had actually been involved in acting for quite a while. When I first got there, the state play of Florida was called Cross and Sword. And I was about 13 years old, and I went and auditioned for it. And I got the role of a character named Jesus. And I did it by doing the Gettysburg Address. So I, 
It's the only thing I had memorized at the moment from Boy Scouts. So I got the role, and I really loved doing it. So I started doing some of the regional theater around. Um, and, of course, in high school, I was in the drama class, and I was doing all the, uh, the performances. And um, so when I graduated high school, uh, I decided to become a doctor <laughs> because my dad had uh, retired from the military and become the administrator for a hospital that was being built. And I was also interested in science and medicine. So it just seemed natural that I would do that. So I went to the University of Florida, um, pre-med, until Chem 101 knocked me into liberal arts. Um, <laughs> I made a C in chemistry. That's not really good for a pre-med career. No. So I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life at that uh, time. And there were a few revelations that happened to me. And one of them involved a movie called The Goodbye Girl, which uh, Richard Dreyfus starred in. And people were telling me, oh, you should see that he's playing you. So I went and saw it, and I thought, well, I see some similarities. It's not really me, but I, I could certainly play that role. And then he won the Academy Award. So I'm walking to the student union, and I had this epiphany moment. As I'm walking to the student union, I'm thinking to myself, well, of course he won the Academy Award. Only special people win those. And then I really stopped in my footsteps, and I said, wow, if he had felt that way, he never would have gotten close to that award. Oh, fascinating. So at that moment, I thought, you know what? I'm going to switch my theater. I'm going to become an actor because that's what I've always loved doing. So I called my dad, you know, my 23-year career man in the military and a doctor in a very conservative community. And I said to him, I said, Dad, I, I think I know what I want to do with my life. I'm going to change my major. I'm not going to be pre-med. I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm actually going to another school, Florida State, who has a wonderful theater program, and I'm going to be an actor. And my dad's reaction was, well, son, you've always loved it. You should give it a shot. So I told you, I had great parents. Amen for supportive parents. Yeah. yeah. And my mother was my biggest fan. Um, she would come to every performance I ever did, anything that I did stage-wise. So I went to Florida State University. Go Knowles. Yay. I'm a big supporter of the school. And has a wonderful film school now. And when I graduated, I packed up everything, and I came out to Los Angeles. When I got here... Uh, I came out as an actor, and I immediately got an entry-level position in the business as a waiter, <laughs> working at a little restaurant called Womp Hoppers, which was a theme restaurant at Universal Studios Tour. Mm. Yeah. And they hired actors and singers and dancers there because, um, I, as I would tell the people, I would say, the entertainment here is number one, the food is number two. And I mean that in almost every respect. <laughs> but we had a great time, and it was a great place to kind of try out material and your personality. While I was there, I actually am getting to my career, believe it or not. <laughs> it's great so far. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, in another part of the world, uh, while I was at Wampoppers, I met this guy named Bert Pearl. And Bert and I became best friends, instantly best friends. He was this incredibly creative, funny person. Um, we just struck up a friendship. And, and it was funny. He had worked at Wampoppers and then had left. So I came in during that interim. And when I started working there, I was the one who was very funny and I was very, I don't know, entertaining, I guess. So the other people working there who knew Bert, they had said, oh, Bert Pearl's coming back. We can't wait to see you guys fight it out to see who the king of comedy is. <laughs> so I'm like, OK, I don't know this guy. So his first day there, he had heard this about me. And we just said, why don't we go across the street to the bar and just hang out? And we did. From that point on, it was him and me against everybody else. Yes. <laughs> so we became the terrors. Well, during all of this. Um, put that off to the side for a moment. One of the things I was doing as an actor is I had joined an acting studio called uh, Dvorak Vaughn 
and Wayne Dvorak and Roger Vaughn. Wayne Dvorak still teaches in Los Angeles. He's a wonderful teacher. And one of the things they had started there, which at the time was very new, is they were bringing in casting directors to actually teach classes and to have us do auditions for. Now, that now is fairly common. Back then, it was very, very new. So I was meeting all these casting directors. Now, one of the things about me is that I'm not somebody who heavily promotes myself. This has become a kind of a running gag, especially now that I'm supposed to be working on a novel because novelists all promote themselves. Yes. When I'm doing a show, I have a publicity department or I have marketing and I just feel uncomfortable going up to people who will come up to me because they're fans. You know, I love your work, Steve. Oh, great. Buy my stuff. I feel uncomfortable with that. Right. <laughs> so. You're not alone in that. I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a bizarre world. It just, and my friends who are authors and the people I'm co-authoring with, I see them do it with such ease. And so I'm, I'm having a, a kind of a difficult time with that. So because I guess... I was like that, um, and also because I'm truly curious about other people and what they do, my relationships with these casting directors um, was not the kind that caused them to build walls. A lot of people in the business, they'll build up a wall if they think they're trying to use you. And I was truly curious about what they did. So I, got a, I had a good relationship with these casting directors. So I got a chance to ask them questions about what they did. And one of the questions I asked them is, you know, what's the most, like, thing that you would change about your job? And most of them said they were tired of hearing actors come in using the same material on their auditions, on their cold readings. And at that time, Neil Simon was very big. Right. And it was everybody was coming in doing Neil Simon. Everybody's doing Neil Simon. So I thought, all right, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I know what I'll do. I'll start writing my own audition scenes. So I would sit down. I would write a three-page audition scene, which is in about three minutes. And I started performing them. After a while, I was going to showcases throughout the city and finding my scenes being done by other actors. They were getting copies of my scenes. <laughs> and I was very flattered by that. That's, that's great, but how did that happen? Well, I mean, people in my class would, you know, we always traded copies. I'd be working with somebody. They would take a copy home. So they would say, oh, here's a great scene from my roommate. The roommate would take it. So it's just like a, you know, filtering effect. So it's old school viral distribution. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's done with old tree flesh. But yeah, it's old, old school virus. Um, so I went to one showcase and there were, I believe, seven different scenes being done. And I was unaware of any of the other scenes because it was just myself and my partner. And this was one that, you know, that wasn't from our acting class. So other people had basically joined this, but I had never seen their scenes. The night of the performance, five of the scenes were mine. Five of seven? Five of them were ones I had written. Wow. So when I was done with it, one of the uh, casting directors, Harriet Helbert, who uh, was the casting director for many things, including uh, Benson, a very popular show, she asked me if I was the same guy who had written all those scenes. And I said, yes. And she goes, oh, you've got to become a writer. And I said, oh, that's ridiculous. It's like a typing and I'm not going to. No, I forget. I can't do that. <laughs> and she said, no, you should think about it. So that night, I, um, I pulled out one of the scripts that I had uh, acquired at Universal Studios. I stole it. Uh, that's how I got my scripts back. You couldn't just download things. Another sidebar. I would actually, because of. Uh, the restaurant being a part of the Universal Studios tour, I had access to the lower lot. Right. So Bert and I would go down to the um, secretarial office where they did all the printing. And there were huge uh, racks of scripts that each producer, there you know, was a name to each slot, and each producer's drafts were in there for them to be picked up. And he and I would walk in, 
and we would just act like we were supposed to be there. So we'd be saying, I don't see it. You see it over there? Oh, yeah, yeah, here it is. Okay, grab that one. Uh, I'll, I guess I'll just grab this one. As an old roadie, I tell people all the time, just like look like you belong. Exactly. Don't, yeah. don't act shady. That's just right. Walk into places like you own the joint. And nobody usually asks you. Most people will not bother. Question. One of my, if anything, they'll ask you. Um, excuse me. Um, yeah. Can you help me? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. One of my um, um, diversions, and I actually recommend this to anybody trying to get into the business. You're going to have those days where you feel like you're making no headway whatsoever. And my little I've been trick, having that the last couple of days. So. <laughs> I, I know people have had it the last several years, but there's a little bit of a, of a mind trick to it. I always felt in, in terms of big steps and baby steps. Mm -hmm. And a big step would be something happens in your career. And, oh, my gosh, I can brag about this. But when you don't have those, too many people sit around saying, oh, am I doing making the right choices? Is this my career? What I would do is I would say, I'm going to sneak onto a lot. Now, by the way, I don't recommend that now because security is it's very, very tight. Yes. Way different yeah. now. But back then, it was like, I'm just going to see if I can. I never got stopped. And I would do things like I would put on a baseball cap backwards, grab up some trash boards from a bin, and just walk in as if I was heading to construction. Mm -hmm. And if they asked me, I would just say, I said, look, you know, construction, I got to get this there. No problem. Go ahead. Well, once I was on the lot, I would go to the back lot, and I would just walk around. And that, to me, was a baby step. Uh -huh. Right. It didn't really do anything to improve my chances in the career, except it reminded me of why I was there. Right. And even baby you steps to move forward. Exactly. You yeah. immerse yourself in it. You're like, this is mine. I'm going to possess this one day. But even baby steps are forward movement. So kind of a sidebar thing. But that's how, you know, Bert and I would treat going down and just acting like we knew we were supposed <laughs> to be there. So I, I read through this script and very naively I thought to myself, wow, this is like a whole bunch of little three-minute scenes, except with a structure and an order. That's very naive, but it's actually somewhat correct. Right. So I thought I would um, try to write a script. And in two days, I wrote a really sucky script. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. It's horrible. It, it absolutely sucks. But I was like, holy crap, this is so much fun. <laughs> I got get to it be, out of your system. I was like, I'm all the characters. I can set things up. I can have them play. Oh, I can do it. And it was just, I loved it. I had to do it again. It was a drug. So. One nice quick thing. question. Yes, indeed. Do you still have that first script? I do, as a matter of fact. Yes. And second question, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to ask that second question because I figured as much. But I think yes. that's awesome that you've kept it all this oh, time. Oh, absolutely. That's, yeah. That's awesome. Um, remind me of that, by the way, that I've kept kept that because that actually triggers something else that I, I want to okay. mention about trying to, to maintain your joy in this business okay because it can beat you down if you allow it so anyway yeah that got me started the last so, couple days so i started uh, oh, i want to hear that story actually <laughs> so i started getting interested in writing so what i started to do is i got these scripts and i would break them down like with a high school outline i didn't know i was actually doing a beat sheet mm -hmm. but i was trying to figure out and this is how i do everything when i approach anything that i want to learn it wasn't so much the mechanics and the academic aspect of writing a script. I wanted to feel what it felt like to be a writer. Mm -hmm. When I learned to play golf, I didn't read books about it. I watched golfers and I said, I wonder what that feels like, that Zen moment where everything you've taught has just disappeared and you just do. I've always been motivated by that. That's what draws me into this. So when I started breaking down the scripts, scene by scene, I was trying to figure out what was in the writer's mind. Then I would take my outline and I would write a mirror script. Same basic structure, 
slightly different plot, slightly different MacGuffins, different characters, but I just wanted to mirror what I thought were the basics. And at a certain point, I got to Act 3 in uh, one script. I think it was only the second script I was trying to mirror. And I put the outline away, and I just kept writing. And then when I compared it later on, I went, oh, my God, I did it. I, I did it correctly, and I had a little feeling of it. So that actually launched me into writing real scripts, not just the, the test scripts. So at the same time, Bert and I, remember Bert earlier in the story? Funny man. Uh, yes. <laughs> he and I, um, he also enjoyed writing. So we started working together, and we decided we were going to write some scripts. Remember back when I said, I'll give you the short version? <laughs> we were much younger then. Um, so we started working on some of our, our favorite TV shows, just writing spec scripts. And Bert was also an actor. There was a new show that had just come on um, NBC, and it was called Riptide. Now, this was back in the mid-'80s. I loved the show. It was about three guys living on a boat. Two of them were hunks. One of them was kind of a geeky guy with a computer and a little bit of a robot that he had around called the Robaz, and they solved crimes. And it was just kind of cool. It was that Canalesque humor that he'd brought from Rockford Files and Greatest American Hero. So one of the things I used to do is I would call production offices and ask them if they had a writer's guide. Some shows did, others didn't. And this was really just so I could read and learn more. Mm -hmm. So I called the offices of Riptide. And this, they transferred me to some desk and this woman answered the phone and I asked her that. I said, hi, I'm Steve Sears. Notice I wasn't Stephen L. Sears at the time. My acting name at that time was Steve Sears. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm kind of interested in writing. Um, I was wondering if you had a writer's guide uh, because, you know, of Riptide. And she said, uh, well, we don't have a writer's guide, but did you like the show? And I went, oh, yeah, I love the show. And then we got into a conversation about the show. And it was a great conversation. And then we talked about L.A. And we talked about, you know, just this, all this other stuff. Once again, I was not trying to push toward anything. I was actually very interested in what she was saying because I had fascination again. So we talked for a long time. So finally she said, do you have any samples of your work? And I said, oh, yeah, my partner have I written uh, you know, like four specs, five specs, spec scripts, speculative scripts. And she said, well, if you have two that are not riptides, why don't you, you know, do you have an agent? And I went, yeah, even though we didn't actually, we had somebody who we knew would send it on our behalf. Um, she said, well, why don't you have your agent send them over? Because I know the producers are looking for freelance writers. And who knows? And I mm -hmm. went, great. Thanks for the advice. And that was it. She didn't get my name. I didn't get her name. No idea who this person was. Contacted that agent, told him. He sent it off. About a month and a half later, um, we got a call from the story editor for Riptide, a guy named Tom Blumquist. And Tom said, why don't you guys come in and meet the executive producer? We'd just like to chat. Okay. Bert and I have no idea what's going on. We've never had a meeting before. <laughs> so we go in and we meet uh, Tom and then we meet the exec producer, Babs Grayhowski. Oh, um, dear. I, I know. I, I think I know what's coming. Well, <laughs> probably not because I, I'll tell you, the first thing we thought with a name like Babs Grayhowski, we're picturing some, you know, 50, 60-year-old Barbie doll desperately trying to hold on to her youth with cakes of makeup. And no, she was like 29 years old. And um, if you remember the actress Veronica Hamill from Hill Street Blues, who was gorgeous, well, that's what she looked like. So we were introduced to her, and the four of us were in her office, and we started having fun. We were laughing. We were kidding around. These were two incredibly just wonderful people to hang out with. 
So eventually they said, well, do you have any thoughts about our show? Now, Bert and I had come up with five ideas for possible episodes. So we pitched the ideas. Three of them, they said, well, those are kind of interesting. Um, why don't you go think about those? Great. So we go home. We're like, okay, well, let's think about them. So we funk. Two of them, we kind of figured out a, an approach on them. One of them, we couldn't. We kind of abandoned it. But I had a notion about something about the boat that they lived on. So when we went back, we repitched the two. Then we pitched the new one. And they said, oh, that new one, that's kind of interesting about the boat. Why don't you guys kind of come up with a story? Great. So we go home. Good little soldiers. We're just having fun. We came up with a story. We sent it to them, came back in for another meeting. They dissected it, ripped it apart, put it back together again as we were sitting there. And we had a great time doing it, although we were sitting there saying, wow, we get to watch them at work. You know, this is, we didn't know what was going on. So when we were done, Tom Blumquist turned to me and he said, um, I need to have your agent's name for business affairs. And I said, well, I don't want to seem really naive because I'm like ignorance. But does that mean we got the assignment? And he goes, yeah, you got the assignment two weeks ago. <laughs> now, by the way, as a side note, um, so we started writing that, that story up. We turned it in, once again went to another session, and they put us into the first draft. So we started writing that. Now, wow. sidebar, 30 years ago, exactly this week, was when I was working on that scrap. Oh, wow. Exactly. The <laughs> end of August. Thank you very much. The end of <laughs> August. Now, here's the amusing thing, because I'm assuming nothing I've said so far has been amusing. <laughs> Lots. <laughs> I see the smile. We're chatting. This is great. <laughs> well, when I walked out of the office after they told us we had the assignment, this tells you the motivation Okay, I told you this was pure joy for Bert and I. We were just having fun. Mm -hmm. Bert turns to me and he says, "How much are we being paid for this?" <laughs> we had no idea because we weren't right. doing it, it for matter. money. It did yes. not matter. It makes you happy. It, yeah, it's that fun. was the thing. So I, at that time, the day rate for an actor was like two hundred dollars a day. So I said to Bert, "I said, well, I hope it's like five hundred dollars because we have to split it fifty-fifty." Well, at that time, a one-hour episodic was fifteen thousand mm -hmm. dollars. We did not know that. When we got our story payment alone, we were so confused because that was like, you know, $3,000 each. I know. And we were, I remember calling Bert and I said, have they bought us out for our lives? What, what is going on? You are owned. We had no idea. How many more episodes do, we, do, do they get exactly. with this money? So we wrote the first draft, turned it in. Um, on Monday, I got a call from Tom Blumquist, and he left it on my answering machine back when people had answering machines at home, and it was a cassette tape. For months, right? I, I still have the cassette tape to this day. And on the message, Tom Blumquist says, I just read your draft. I really liked it. Um, we went ahead and turned your names over to the A team and to Hardcastle McCormick because they might be looking for writers. So I'm like, <laughs> yay! So on, that was on a Monday. On Wednesday, I'm sleeping on the floor of my apartment because I can't afford a bed. At that point, I'd left the restaurant. I was making $130 a week. I'm sorry, back up. $130 a month putting ads in the front of shopping carts. Now, I had <laughs> saved up money from when I was a waiter. It's one thing I'm fairly good at is keeping an eye on my finances. And I'm sleeping on the floor with my girlfriend. And the phone rings. And I pick up the phone and I go, you know, hello. <laughs> and I hear a voice and it's, uh, hi, Steve. This is Babs Krahowski. I went, oh, hi, Babs. And she goes, look, I gave your script to Steve J. Cannell, Stephen J. Cannell. And he read it and he only had one note in the entire script. I went, oh, that's great. 
And she goes, so we were talking and um, just wanted to know if you guys want to come down and get an office here and work with us full time. Oh, wow. And I said, uh-huh. And she said, you're asleep, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, it's a little early. And she goes, when you realize what I just said, call me oh, back. Yeah. And she hung up. <laughs> and I was immediately awake. And I woke up my girlfriend. I'm still holding the phone in my hand. And I turned to my girlfriend and I went, was I just on the phone? <laughs> and she goes, she didn't know. She was asleep. And it took me two hours to talk to myself cut. into calling back because I was positive I dreamed that. And that was the truth. And suddenly we were on staff and we wow. were working. Uh, well, my career didn't stop. It still hasn't stopped. Now, from the moment that I wrote that really, really sucky, sucky script, never intending to be a writer ever in my life, to the moment that I had my own office as Stephen Cannell, was only about 12 months. Wow. That is, and I, this is just the truth, that is actually the closest to an overnight that I've heard. Because I had no mean. training as a writer. To this wow. day, I've not, and I've, people, other people have heard me say this, because there's a little bit of pride to it, although I don't recommend it for everybody else. To this day, the only classes I've ever attended on writing were ones I taught, and the only books I've ever read on writing are the, is the one that I wrote. Well, now, do you think... Part of the reason you were able to succeed and maybe succeed as fast as you did is because you hadn't gone through that process of learning how to be a writer and being That's told how hard it is. And, because you just jumped you know, in you just and kind of made it. it happen. There's a certain um, there's a certain amount of uh, advantage to being naive. Yes, a little and blissful I, ignorance doesn't uh -huh. hurt. It, it's true. I don't I don't disagree with that. But I am the first one to tell people to access all knowledge. Mm -hmm. And even the stuff that I tell people, I, there are certain things that when people ask my advice, I'm going to have to tell them something they don't want to hear. But I have to tell it to them. But I always end it by saying, but please, please prove me wrong. Because back then, everything I did was wrong. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, everything I did was totally textbook. It's exactly what you were told to do. You make a phone call. You set up a meeting. You pitch a script. You get your freelance assignment, and with that, they hire you on staff. The difference is that it all happened in three months. Right. Now, other people, one part happens, and they have to take back a step. Then, you know, it, it bounces back and forth. Well, timing's but, everything sometimes, too. Like and you, that's the other you thing. You just yes. made that call at the right At the exact time, right too. moment. And, the right person um, picked up my, my dad used to say, I'd like to be a lot lucky instead of just a lot yeah. talented. You know? Well, and I say, uh, a lot of people say, you have to be ready when opportunity knocks. Mm -hmm. yes. And I say... That is true, but here's the addendum to it. You have to know which door to stand in front of. Right. And you have to have the equipment right under your arm. The material you need has to be right under your arm. You can't just stand waiting for something to knock at the door. You've got to find the door. But the timing is. Somebody's got to be on the other side of that door. Those are the intangibles. You can't count on that. When people ask me, um, how do you break into the business? I say, when you've done it, let me know. Because you will have a completely different experience. I can only give you advice about my world, how I've done it, what I've experienced dealing with other people, but I can't tell you uh, what's going to happen. See, this business was not, there was no committee that decided how this business would be run. Right. There was no set of rules laid down and saying, here's what we're going to do. It's not like you go and get an accounting degree and with that degree, you can transfer that directly into a job. It isn't as quantifiable. It is very illogical. So what we've, ended up with and what the result of that is, is that we have a business that has no real structure except one thing. Does it work? Mm -hmm. 
I could tell people what the rules are for writing a script because I've heard people talk about the rules. Never do this. Never do that. Never do this. I've broken all of those rules. Certain beat on page 25. That kind of stuff. Transition. Never Never say this word. Never call this. Never do that. You'll offend the director. You'll offend the actor. You'll offend the typist. Give up and go home. (laughs) That's the thing. It's kind of like. Don't use too much stage direction in your scripts. Exactly. Use a lot of description. Don't use a lot of description. And it's all over the place. Depending on who you talk to, you get a different story every time. Yep. And I tell people forget about the rules. Wait, back up. Understand that the rules are there as guidelines. They're not there as rules. They are guidelines because your goal is to tell a riveting story with engaging characters in an entertaining manner. If you do that, that means that people are ignoring your format. They're not paying attention to that because they're involved in your story. Now, format is a part of that, but don't get so wrapped up on those rules. I learned script format because I looked at scripts that were being produced. That's what I recommend to people. And if you see, if you want to write a spec script for a TV show, for example, and you pick whatever TV show you want to pick, Orphan Black, oh, I love that don't show. get wrapped up about the rules. Get a copy of one of their scripts and see how they write it. Right. And try to emulate that. But at a certain point, you're still just telling the story. Well, that's the same thing that they tell us photographers. If you want to be a better photographer, go out, see the images that you want to see, mm-hmm. and then try to recreate it. Yeah, and by the way, I'm, I'm a, an amateur photographer. In fact, I, I was going to geek out over your camera over here. I'm an icon person, though. But so I was going to geek out on your camera. Icon, icon yeah. That's because my lenses were Nikon. That's the story you always hear. I still have my <laughs> F100. I remember I got one of the first D1s and the first D1X, and I have a D200 and D300 and a D800 and a D70. I'm not really hooked. <laughs> well, you and I will have to go out on a little adventure and just go... Shoot L.A. sometime. There you go. And I know a lot of people who would love to do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> She's talking in cameras. Oh, cameras too. <laughs> yes. But you're correct. And I, um, as a good example of that, when people ask me about my photography, I tell them the story. And I wish I could remember the name of the photographer, this woman who's, who's, um, who has quite a career in photography. And she was climbing up to this lake to take a photo of the lake as the sun was setting over it. And it's up on the top of a mountain. By the time she got up there, the sun was almost set, and she didn't have time to, to set up her equipment. So she pulled out one of those little portable snapshots that you buy and took one shot. That became her most famous photo because it's the eye and the circumstance. She knew exactly what to capture, when to capture it, and she did it. The equipment obviously helps, but if you don't have that eye... In the end, the equipment's just tools. Exactly, and that's you the know. same thing about the formatting. It's a useful tool. You do have to follow it to a certain extent, but the rules are just guidelines the whole you know one page equals one minute really yeah. does anybody actually believe that it's not been true in anything and, I've no. written. and it's a function of time the longer your script is the more accurate that tends to be- become because it all averages out but the truth of the matter is one page does not equal one minute when i was writing one hour episodes uh, back in the uh, 80s and 90s, the scripts were about 60 to 65 pages. Well, that makes sense. One page per minute, one hour. So You're ignoring the commercials. Minutes, right? Yeah. Well, back then it was 48 minutes. Now it's 43 minutes. So you're not really writing. You get a feel for it. So that's another thing you kind of throw out the window. So not knowing that, maybe it helped. Um, I can't say that not knowing the odds uh, helped me because that's never bothered me. When I was leaving Florida as an actor... And I was packing everything up, and I was so like naive and like, oh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to cross country. I'm becoming an actor. Blah, blah, blah. 
my mother was reading a book that I had called Acting Professionally by um, Robert Cohen. It's a very good book. And the first chapters, he tells you all the odds are against you. It's a really upsetting book in the first chapter. And I, I'm probably paraphrasing, but the impression I had at the end of the second chapter was, at this point, if you continue reading, you are either insane or dedicated. Either way, you'll probably be successful. <laughs> but one of the things he mentioned is he said 98% um, um, of the people who attempt this fail. 98% of the people who go out to L.A. to be an actor fail. And she said, how are you going to compete against those people? And I didn't even think about this. I said, I'm not competing against them. I'm competing against the 2% who succeed. But see, that's always been my attitude. Because I am, this, and this is not arrogant because everybody can say this along with me, and it's absolutely true. I am an extremely unique person. And I believe in the talents that I have, and I believe in who I am, and I will go as far as I possibly can because of that. That's not an arrogant statement because it doesn't make me any better than anybody else. The problem is, is everybody thinks they're lesser than that. And right. that's ridiculous. So Everybody's too busy trying to compare themselves to other people. That irritates the heck out of me. Anytime somebody says, I want to be the next Joss Whedon. No, be the next you. That's exactly what I say. I say, you know what? We actually have another. We have a Joss Whedon and he's awesome. Why, you know, you want to be him? Be yeah. who you are. You could be even awesomer. Right? Now, don't, and people will tell me, you know, I want to be the next D. Sears. And I'm like, have you seen the way I dress? <laughs> don't <laughs> you know be who you are because that is pretty cool and awesome in itself and that's the uniqueness you need you have to brand yourself as an individual in this business yeah so oh and, and just by the way back to because i said remind me about yeah, you know about the script yeah. okay um you asked me if i kept uh, that script so i could remember that all right <laughs> i love the joy i had getting into the business i still love the joy of doing things the first day that Bert and I actually had, the day we had to show up in our office, the first day we had an office, when, um, when we were talking to Tom um, after I called Babs back, and he said, look, I know you, you need to you know, settle up some things with wherever your business, take two weeks, and you know, we'll bring you in. And I said, Tom, I'm putting the ads in the front of shopping carts. I'm not worried about burning that bridge. <laughs> so, so I said, we'll be in Monday. And so Monday morning... Bert and I got in my old Toyota Tercel, and we went to the big parking structure that they had next to Cannell, because up at the top was where we used to park in the visitor spaces. And we're driving around the structure, going up and up and up. And suddenly, I hit the brakes, and we look over there, and there are two parking spots with our names on them. <laughs> we left the car running. Man, it happens fast. Right? We got out, we stood in our spots and looked at each other with like, do you believe this is happening? <laughs> now... That was 30 years ago. I've done I don't know how many shows. I truly don't, which is kind of cool. I produced I don't know how many shows. To this day, every time I have a new parking spot, I take a photo of it. Definitely. Just to remember what that felt like. Yes. That's awesome. That's, it's the same thing about you know getting published. It's like, wow, that is such a cool feeling. Yeah. Although I will tell you the one time that, that I expected it to be a really cool feeling and it wasn't what I expected was when the first episode actually aired. And it was called Curse of the Mary Aberdeen, and uh, both Burton, obviously, Stephen L. Sears and Bert Furl. And I was alone at the time. I was at my apartment, and the screen came on, and I'm waiting for it, and I'm waiting for it, and there's my credit, and then it was gone, and I kind of went, oh, okay. I expected more dragons and fireworks. I don't know. <laughs> there should be fanfare. <laughs> but the second time, the second episode of mine that appeared... <laughs> 
Um, there used to be an electronics uh, chain of stores called Circuit City. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I was standing in line at Circuit City for something. And I, I had set my VCR with VHS tape <laughs> to record. So I wasn't worried about getting home. But, you know, I knew my episode was about to air. So I'm standing in line waiting for something. And I look around and there are hundreds of TV sets. <laughs> so I turned to the guy behind me and I said, would you mind saving my spot? And I went around and turned every one of them to Channel 4. <laughs> got back yes. in line and this guy was like, what was that about? And I went, wait for it. <laughs> and boom, there it was. That was Dragons and Fireworks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's so that funny. is awesome. And what was his reaction? He nodded. I told him, I said, that's my name. And he goes, awesome. Actually, he didn't say awesome, but he did say something similar to that. So that was pretty cool. Well, I hope to be you one day. (laughs) Oh, yeah, great. Well, we got a lot of things you need to deal with. (laughs) You obviously have some issues. Yes, yes. So that was the short version of how I broke in. (laughs) I think that... A lifetime in the making. I think it's awesome because I love love the just can-do attitude of it. It's like... Well, you know, here's... The follow-up to the Richard Dreyfuss story, okay? I've always loved Richard Dreyfuss's work. Everything from Jaws and, and just the stuff he's done. I, I think he's brilliant. Um, pages off the calendar. Woo, flicker, flicker, flicker. They don't say that anymore. They're swiping through the calendar. <laughs> uh, it's uh, San Diego Comic-Con about, oh, about four years ago. I'm dating um, this girl, and... We're going to go down to San Diego Comic-Con, and it, of all the conventions, that's the only one I've never actually done a panel at. I've done them at other places. So I just go down to hang out with friends. Yeah. So I find out. It's a good venue out, for that. Do what? It's a good venue for that. Uh, yeah, me out. and 130,000 of my friends. <laughs> um, I'm going to open a booth there with hygienic products. But anyway, <laughs> it's like, yes, I'm in a hurry to go to the convention. But, you know, showers only take 15 minutes at best. Okay. We hire a bunch of French people to sell perfume. Like, actually, I heard that this year there was a, a deodorant company actually handing out samples. Oh, was there? Yes. Awesome idea. Yeah. Awesome idea. That is needed there. <laughs> so I find out that Richard Dreyfus is actually going to be signing. And I've only seen him previously in a couple of restaurants. And I never talked to him. I never bothered him. I don't, I don't do that. I'm not wired that way. I have a I have a Dreyfus restaurant story. I'll tell you. Okay, when good. You're done. <laughs> so I, I I know he's going to be there, and I tell my girlfriend. I said, look, I, I'm going to get him to sign my Goodbye Girl DVD because that actually has means something to me. And um, she said, Are you going to tell him the story about that? And I went, You know what? Let's cruise by there. If he's a dick to his fans, because I see some people signing who are totally dicks, I'm not going to even bother. Right. Cruised by there. The guy looked like he was having a great time. He was chatting with people. And I just thought, okay, tomorrow I'm bringing it in. I got to get this thing signed. So I come back in. And my girlfriend has um, like a DVD of the Tin Man that she wants him to sign. So I get up there and he's signing. And I decide I'm going to tell him the story. So I introduce myself. Once again, the self-promotion thing. I have a problem with that, but I had to say it. And I said, look, I'm a, you know, I was a co-exec producer and one of the head writers for Xena, Warrior Princess. And I said, I just want to tell you this story about the beginning of my career and something that inspired me. And I told him that story. And he complimented me on Xena, which was really, really nice. Um, and uh, he, he thanked me for the story. And as he was signing, I told him, I said, I just can't get out of my mind the fact that I said that, that you know, I said only special people win that award. And he looked up at me and he says, and you know, it never occurred to me that I couldn't. <laughs> 
And I said, awesome. That's exactly the philosophy that I learned from it from that point on. Mm -hmm. So that's where that kind of came from. Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> nice to get it reinforced. Yeah. Nobody has ever resisted their way to the top. You've got to indulge yourself. You have to embrace it. But people want the dream, but they fight the dream. And nobody has ever fought the dream to get to the top. They don't really work for their dream either. They have a misconception about yeah. how these dreams happen. Yeah. Um, it well, is the, hard the, work. the belief that there's an overnight success. Like it just happens. Well, exactly. Definitely not. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, maybe something flips in a 12 month period, but there's all the steps that took the to get steps. there. Yes. Like you said, you have to be in front of the right door. Exactly. You have to and do what it takes to be in the right place at the right time. And the things that set me up for that door weren't just writing scripts. It was everything that happened in my life, my mm -hmm. attitude, uh, the acting that I took, the improv classes that I took that allowed me to, to communicate with people and to be able to play a room. All of it, that it, led up to the same thing. It's finding someone like Bert to be in your life to kind of exactly. hold your hand and, and share that with you. Yeah. And um, we can always think of alternate futures, what could have happened. And I really, I never indulge in that kind of a thing except kind of like an academic laugh. Because when somebody says, well, if you hadn't done this, that wouldn't have happened. I say, well, if I hadn't done this, maybe this would have happened. But the bottom line is I know this. This is what happened. And that worked. Mm -hmm. And I either embrace the joy in it or I learn from any of the mistakes and move on. You know, I, I, I'm not wired for regret. I'm not. People ask me, that's a common question you get when people send a, do a questionnaire interview. You know, what's the one thing you regret? And I'd say, you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. But if I regret, that means I haven't left the mistake. I'm living back there, just reliving it and reliving it. If I can fix it, I fix it. If I can't fix it, I learn from it and I move on so I don't do it again. I think that's a great lesson for people to learn. I think so, too. I, I, it's like one of the popular memes on uh, Facebook or something. You know, mm -hmm. just, you know, don't regret what you did. Just yeah. learn from it and move on. Yeah. And I, I've had an up and down life. I mean, my, my parents passed away when I was young. Um, that's all part of the adventure. Uh, yeah, not something I like. I love my parents. Mm -hmm. But that was a part of my life. So I have to embrace that. Um, relationships, business decisions, all have had ups and downs. And I kind of look at that and I say, that's the story I'm telling about me. That's the book of me. So I can't sit there and keep rereading chapter five. Yeah. Well, this, so, somebody's asked, people have asked me uh, numerous times, uh, what, what is there in your life that you would change? You know, not just my career, but, you know, you could go back and change any one aspect of your life. What would it be? And I'm like, look, I had a really shitty childhood, uh, but I love who I am today. And I wouldn't be who I am today. Yeah. If I hadn't gone through those experiences. That's they're, absolutely correct. They're part of the makeup of what I am. And I can't just think about how convenient it would be to just excise something because it's a cascade It'll effect. change everything. You, know? yeah. you have to It's always greener somewhere all. else. Yeah. And it's actually pretty green right below our feet. We just don't see it. Yeah. Well, and, and my attitude about this is when somebody would just say, I would change this in my life. I immediately want to say, so you're not happy. Oh, no, I'm very happy. Then why? Why would you change any of that? If you're happy now, why would you change it? Because, you know, you could be miserable now. Well, I could be happier. No, you could be, happy, happy. you don't know. Exactly. You know, and that, by the way, that is the goal of, uh, of everybody. When I, when I have spoken in front of classes, I ask 
after you know, I get the, the students in the class to introduce themselves and tell me a little bit about themselves. And then I say, what's your goal? I want to write an animation pilot for a series. I want to write the next Pixar movie. I want to write the next you know, Michael Bay movie. Um, they'll give me all these aspirations. And I'll say to them, I say, okay, that's great. And you're all wrong. And I'm going to be arrogant enough to tell you you're wrong. Because that's not what your goal is. Your goal is very simple. You want to be happy. What makes you miserable is you can't figure out how to do that. But that's your goal. If I had decided that my goal was going to be my goal when I was an actor, would I have tried writing? Oh, no, no. Writing is a distraction. It's getting in the way of my acting. I have to be an actor. I am so happy with that choice. Um, I've been offered more acting roles since I left it. I've turned them all down. I love writing so much. You know, when I'm in between running a show and somebody, if somebody offered me a job as an actor, sure, I might take it. Um, but I love the fact that I found writing. I mean, to me, that is the most amazing thing. That was a thing that was going to make me happy, and I didn't know it at the time. But because I was searching for the happy part, that naturally was going to come along. Do you think that the fact that you do have an acting background and you have stood on stage and performed and had to find the voice of a character, do you think that that has helped kind of educate you as a writer too, though? Yes, absolutely. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine last night about this. Um, She does uh, stand-up comedy. And we were talking about crowds and how you are in front of them. Um, Acting, especially improv acting, made me a better writer. Because with improv, every actor out there knows this, with improv, you are given a situation and you are told to create immediately and interact with people. You have to think fast. You have to be able to construct a story very quickly in your mind and you have to have natural dialogue. Well, that's what I do on a daily basis when I'm running a TV show. Sometimes you've got to get a script page down to the set immediately. You've got to work just like you're on a stage. But more importantly, it gave me the confidence to deal with people in a room. When I pitch for TV series or anything like that, I will say I'm actually a very good uh, pitchman. I'm really good at it. You don't always sell everything. But to me, it's my opportunity to tell a story, which I love doing. And it's my opportunity to work with a, an audience. I can feel the audience. I can feel what they're reacting to. And I can adjust my pitch to try to adjust that, just like a stand-up comic would do, just like any actor on stage. Um, and I come off the stage. Uh, when you're on stage, you're doing a play, and the actor will actually sense what the mood of the audience is, and they will adjust themselves. They don't even have to change the lines. They adjust their performance just enough to get the audience back in. Um, Now, my comfort level in front of people, I actually don't know where that came from. Um, My father was um, very, very, he was very confident in himself and very, uh, you know, military guy. So he was um, uh, very friendly, very gregarious. My mother was very quiet. Uh, My mother had an opportunity for a singing career when she was younger with um, one of the national radio stations. I think it was NBC. And she turned it down because the thought of her being heard by millions of people across the country terrified her. And um, and it was only by accident that that happened. She had recorded some um, old records of her singing when she was like 16 or 17 years old, and somebody heard it and submitted her. So when I would go on stage, she just thought that was incredible, but I had really no fear. I would just walk out on the stage. And to this day, when I appear at conventions or anything in front of people, I don't really prep. I just kind of go out and, and I look at it this way. I'm going out and having a, just a chat with somebody. 
it might be 500 right. people. That's but, the way right. we view the podcasts. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. That's you know, a great way to look at it. It's one of the first things people ask. They're like, why don't you have questions? You have no questions. Like, did you do your research on the person? I'm like, I want to learn about this person. Yeah, uh-huh. it makes it more genuine yeah, and interesting. I want to learn about them from we, we, them. We look at the IMDb. Okay, that's fine. They did a lot of stuff. That's cool. Yeah. You know, but beyond that, it's like, well, how well, are we going to know yeah. your story unless you tell it? If I don't, if I walked into this interview and sat down and said, so tell me about Xena, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'd have never got that origin story from you, <laughs> which I think is the best part of this whole conversation. You know, Thank you. hearing about how you just went at it and you didn't let anything kind of hold you back. And yeah, you were struggling with bills and whatever else, but you I was doing figured out that writing was else. fun and you kept at it. And, and I kept at it. I, I, yeah, there you are. You know? It's, um, we experienced some of that with the podcast when we launched it a year ago. Mm-hmm. People were like, well, you live in San Diego. How are you going to get guests? Well, we'll, well, we'll drive we to LA, to I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, who, it and who's they will going to get them for you? Well, my friend yeah. Carla knows a bunch of PR people. Like, we I think we can figure in it ourselves. out. You yeah. know, yeah. and you're having fun with it. Yeah. yeah, and they're like, "What experience do you have interviewing people?" Uh, I talk to people every day. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> it's just like, and, and you got, also got to go at it too with the the attitude that you know everyone has a story to tell, and all you have to do is say hello, how are you? Mm-hmm. Let's chat. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, you know, and show in, in true true interest, not you know just insincere interest, but true interest in what somebody is like. Uh, because as I said, that's what I think I did a lot when I was younger with the casting directors. I was truly interested in them. I wasn't saying give me a job. Well, right. and it's it's a it's an industry where a lot of people are very insincere a lot. Yes. yes. So deep find, down, we're very shallow. I think when you run into somebody who's sincere, it stands out. Yeah. Yeah. Once you know it. People should remember this because I'm now on that other side. It's all about the walls that we build against the masses. And that is true. With thousands and thousands and thousands of actors and writers and wannabe directors and people out there trying to storm the castle and get on the inside, there's a reason why we call it a castle. And fans. Hmm? And fans. Yeah. And, they're, and they all want to, they, the more they push against the door, the stronger we make the walls. Mm-hmm. But what your goal is is to make me peek over the wall and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you, come on in. Come on in. I want to talk to you for a second. And you don't do that by pounding against my door. You you give me a reason to be interested in you. Right. But I can guarantee you, when you meet someone and start promoting yourself immediately to them, they realize, oh, I understand the relationship here. You want to use me, and I have something of value. Therefore, my wall goes up. Uh, You know, and you're not really going to do anything that's going to burn your career at the beginning. I've had a lot of people tell me that. Oh, I'm afraid if I do this, uh, you know, my... Or people who get pressured by other people who pretend to be in the business and they'll be told, if you don't do this, you know, your career is over. Right. Um, I tell people, I say, look, first of all, your career is not over. You know, saying no to something, no is the most powerful word at your disposal because you define your boundaries by saying no. You don't do it frivolously. But everybody in this business is so willing to say yes that when you say no, people take notice and they say, oh, now I understand who you are as a person. Because I understand your boundaries. That's great. Um, So when you define yourself, you become identifiable as an individual. But so many people are so willing to to say the yes and to get involved that, you know, eventually they become miserable because their choices are just grabbing. But eventually somebody will say, well, you're going to, you know, your career is over if you don't do this. And my response is, first of all, your career is not over by defining yourself. And secondly, if it is, congratulations, you have a career. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, 
window just means um, one door is going to close, but a window is going to open. Yes, on the third floor. That's the yes. uh, always a continuation. <laughs> of that. I got my climbing shoes on. Always oh, the meme that I liked is like you know when when one door closes, open it. That's what a door is for. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to tell you my Dreyfus story. Okay. Yes. Um, I want to hear this? I mean, obviously, I've I heard grew- actually good and bad Dreyfus stories. Fortunately, I, mine have been good. I, I grew I grew up you know watching the guy in Jaws and everything else, and um, my mom is a huge fan of his, and we we live in roughly the same community as him down in San Diego, mm-hmm. and so my mom and I went to breakfast one day. And we come rolling up to the Broken Yoke. And as we're walking up, I look through a window and I see Richard Dreyfus, And I'm just quiet about it because I don't want to get my mom excited. And she's usually oblivious to everything around her except this one instance. She goes walking by the window and she stops and she turns. And she's like a little rabbit poking her head out of a hole. And she's like, that's, 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 that's. And I'm like, yes, yes, it is. It's the Yes, Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, 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 Jaws, Jaws. <laughs> like, yes, Mom, you know. She's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know. That's funny. And she's cute little old Filipino lady, you know. It's, it's adorable <laughs> watching her get all excited. And, and and mind you, by this point, I'm I'm an old hand. I've, I've been a roadie for a long time. I've, I've worked in the business for a while. I don't generally approach anybody, especially in public like that. Mm-hmm. He's having his breakfast let him be. So we go in. They end up seating us two booths away from his. And so I'm sitting with my back to him. And my mom's sitting facing him over my shoulder. Funny. And yeah. she's just she just can't stop it. She's getting more and more wound up about the fact that Richard Dreyfus is two booths away. <laughs> and she and she, she goes, you have to go get his autograph. You have to take a picture. Go take a picture. And I'm like, I'm not going to take a picture. You know, he's trying to eat. You know, there's a lot of people in this restaurant. Let's not draw attention. Obviously, everybody here probably wants to go get a piece of the man, but you know. Yeah, but the minute you do. Let it it be, mom. Let it be, you know. (laughs) And finally, she's just, she's almost yelling at me at this point. You won't do anything for your mom. Like, fine. So I slide my iPhone over to her. I'm like, here, go take a picture if you want. You know, I'm sure he won't mind a little old Filipino lady walking up to him and asking for a photograph. It was like, it meant the world to her that I gave her permission. So up she goes, she walks over there, and you can see the look on his face as she's walking up. He's like, oh, there it comes, you know? And she goes, ah, can I take your picture? And she's very quiet, <laughs> very sheepish about it. And he smiles at her and he goes, yeah, sure. And he sits and he poses and... She holds up my phone, and I realize as she goes to take it, oh, crap, she's too nervous. The phone's shaking like crazy. She takes a picture, and I see her hit the button and move the camera away so she can walk off as quickly as possible. And I'm like, this picture's not going to be worth anything. So she walks over. She sits down. She's super excited. She's like, show me the photo. Show me the photo. (laughs) I open up the photo. Sure enough, it's just like this white streak, (laughs) you know? Like, you can't tell it's a ghost, you know? She goes, oh, you've got to go take another picture. <laughs> like, Mom, he's sitting there with his wife. You know, like, you've already disturbed him once. Let's, let's just let it be. It wasn't meant to be to get the photo. So for the next 10 minutes, she's all over my case. Like, you got to go do it. You love me. If you love me, you're going to do it. Go do it. Finally, his wife gets up and goes to the bathroom. So I'm like, all right, he's alone. I'm not disturbing her, at least. So I, I begrudgingly get up and I walk over and 
I, I kneel down next to the table and say, you know, excuse me, Mr. Dreyfus, you know, I know you're having your breakfast and you're reading your paper. I'm very sorry. My mother came over here. She took a photo of you. She was so nervous. The photo's just a big blur. And she wanted me to come over and ask you if I could take another photograph for her. <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, I'd really rather you don't. <laughs> and he said, totally understand, sir. I apologize. Enjoy your breakfast. And I walked away. Right? <laughs> and I sit down and my mom goes, you didn't take his picture. I'm like, he said, please don't. <laughs> you know? And she's like, no. You know, she's on the verge of tears. And then his wife comes back and sits down. And they're not there 10 seconds after she comes back. And he folds the paper up and they get up and leave. Uh-huh. And I was like, and their breakfast was definitely not finished. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I said to my mom, look what we did. You know, we just drove him out of here. Like, he's uncomfortable to be here. You know? Could have been anything. You never know what was going on at the time. Yeah, I've heard, you know, I've heard plus just, and minus stories just... about it. Like I said, mine, fortunately, was uh, were good stories. Yeah. Um, you know, and I and I have friends who've got great stories with him because you know a buddy of mine, manager at the Apple Store in the same town, mm-hmm. and yeah. he go he go in there all the time, and yeah. it was super nice, and they loved they loved it every time he came by. And, you know, and the other side of it is um, because I, I, as weird as it is, I, I, I see how difficult this is for me to even admit. <laughs> I have a certain presence on the internet and because of my show. So I actually do have, and I'll put this, you, you can't see me doing the little quotey thing with my fingers, uh, <laughs> fans. I consider them to be friends, but I have been approached by people while I'm, you know, just doing something. Mm-hmm. But not the way actors are. Yeah. And a lot of um, my friends who are established actors, I've seen it in action when we've been out. Now, um, it's got to be like an uncomfortable familiarity people have with actors. It it can get that way. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's a reflection of the kind of friendship that I like to have with certain people. But my friends who are actors, they don't mind it. Mm-hmm. At least they know how to deal with it. Um, I've been in restaurants where you see people staring and they'll be looking, looking. And I, my friend is just kind of ignoring it because they're used to it. And then somebody will approach and... Even if it's something that is an interruption, because it usually is, they have a face that they put on because they don't want they don't want somebody to walk back upset. Not because of their career, but because these are friends of mine and they truly do care about people's feelings. Mm-hmm. So um, they'll go, you know, it's like, oh yes, well thank you very much. That's great. Yeah, would you like to get a picture? They will take it. They will go for it to try to get it get through it real quickly. Right. And then the person walks away like, oh, my gosh, this person is wonderful, and they wanted a picture with me. Um, I've seen it happen uh, many times. Um, I had a friend uh, that I took back to my hometown one time, and, of course, my hometown hadn't seen a lot of you know big actors. There were a few that had done some movies there. So everybody was, like, looking at him and wondering if he was who they thought. He was a soap star. And, um, uh, and uh, Peter Reckle from uh, Days of Our Lives. And so... At a certain point, I was walking toward the little writer's room, and somebody stopped me, and they said, you know, your friend looks a lot like Bo Brady on Days of Our Lives. And I hadn't talked to Peter about how he wanted me to deal with that. So I kind of said, oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, he does, kind of. So when I got back to the table, I told him, and I said, I forgot to ask you, because I usually do this with with my friends. I say, how do you want me to deal with that? Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, just, it's fine. I can't hide it. And he says, so I'm fine with it. And so at another point the same person who had asked me that um, we struck up another conversation and I said, well, actually that is Peter Reckle. And he goes, Oh great. So when we left the restaurant, 
people were actually standing up to shake his hand. And Peter was great. He was incredibly gracious about this. Thank you very much. I'm glad you watched the show. What I thought was very funny was he's working on Days of Our Lives, a big soap opera. Mm-hmm. All the people who wanted to meet him were these redneck guys. <laughs> <laughs> this little southern town, they're all like, hey, it's, a great, it's a pleasure to meet you, sir. You saved our marriage. <laughs> so, you know, he's got a great demeanor toward that. You know, mm-hmm. He respects the fans. And um, a lot of the people I've worked with, I would say most of the people I've worked with who became friends of mine had that attitude. And quite honestly, if they didn't, they probably wouldn't be friends of mine. Because, right. you know, the fans were everything. It's, people say they love your work. They tell you how you change their lives, and I'm going to be a dick about it. Right? I mean, ridiculous. Yeah, you go hear this, you know, often. Well, you know, you bring joy to me. And and, yeah. and what do you say? You say exactly. Pardon me while I stomp on that. Yes. Yeah. It's let's crush that dream right there. Yeah. And um, well, my uh, yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. My brother-in-law asked me who we were interviewing today, and I said Stephen. I said he he was on, you know, he worked on Xena. And my brother-in-law, who, who was my best friend in college, like we've we've come up together for the last twenty years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, he's he's the funnier one of the two of us. Um, but uh, he goes, "Oh, Zena, huh?" And I said, "Yeah." And he looks at me and he goes, "Gabrielle, yeah, I remember, I remember." Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I love the show. Give me a break, you know. It's a fun show. I, I was, I, you know, I. I Xena, Hercules, like, you know, I, I loved watching both yeah. of them. I didn't work on Hercules. Obviously, Hercules was our big brother. We, were, we, mm-hmm. we spun off of Hercules. Uh, we had a wonderful relationship. It was a dysfunctional family as far as working on the show. Most good productions are. Mm-hmm. We had an interesting mix of um, talented people. And I think this is extremely important. We had uh, directors and actors who respected the writing. Yeah. On some shows, you have what I refer to as a downward spiral. And that's where you as a writer put your heart into a script. It gets to the set, and people just arbitrarily say, I'm going to change this. I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, you know, we're not going to shoot that scene, whether it's actors or directors or whatever. And when you see the dailies, your reaction is, well, why did I put my heart into that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, time to write your next script. Well, I'm not going to waste my time. I'm just going to... You know, I'm going to turn out some garbage that yeah, you know, pretty you much. obviously... So it's a downward spiral because then they read the bad script that you just wrote and they do it again. Mm-hmm. We had the complete opposite on Xena. That's happened on a couple of shows, but not often. And on Xena, what was happening was we would write a script and we'd send it off to the set and our actors and actresses and our directors were sending us back dailies that we like, wow, I didn't know I was that brilliant. <laughs> oh, my God. I got to top this. So we would try to top them, and they would top us. And we, we started referring to it as um, when I would get my dailies, I would say, it's time to look at the little treasures. That's awesome. Because these were little gifts that we were given. And it was an upward spiral. They seemed to respect what we were doing, and we certainly respected what they were doing with our material. So mm-hmm. we kept trying to make it better. At one point between Hercules and Xena, didn't Xena end up topping in the ratings over Hercules? Um, yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a controversial <laughs> it's all, subject. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's all due to the writing, though. Well, because... it, it is true, but I also try to remind people, um, Hercules, the series, gets a really bad rap um, from a lot of fans. Uh, it, it, it's our big brother. We would not have been on the air if it weren't for Hercules right. if um, Rob Tappert and John Shulian and uh, all the, the, the writers and the directors and Kevin and Michael, um, the actors that were the mainstays, 
if they had not pooled their talents and made that show successful, that was our launching pad. I will always be grateful to that show. Xena was a different show. We had a common genealogy and a common universe that we worked in, but we dealt with different types of issues. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the most difficult things that I could think of in writing for Hercules, because I never wrote a Hercules, and for the actors to portray, was the fact that Hercules was truly a good person. He was half God, but he was caught in between two worlds, but still had a heart of gold. That's a difficult thing to write. Right. It's a difficult thing to pull off. We had a character that basically started off as, you know, a, a killer. Right. <laughs> she was a destroyer of nations. We had so much friction and richness in trying to bring that character back and so much guilt and everything we could play with. But the key on that was that we found the right actresses who could play it. Mm -hmm. So many people could have played it as stereotyped or routine. And Lucy and Renee... Uh, and Hudson and Adrian and all the actresses um, that came onto the show just brought an incredible richness to that. You never thought they were. There was stock a lot characters. of depth to it. Yeah. Yeah, and and part of that was that um, the writing staff we analyze and analyze and analyze. And R.J. Stewart and myself, we love psychology. We love history. Um, the other writers, uh, you know, Chris Mannheim, and um, we all thought in layers of character. Action is something I can write easily. It's true. I can mm -hmm. choreograph action very easily. That's not a challenge for me. Writing characters, writing their layers, that is hard. And so that's what I love. Mm -hmm. So when people say you write, you know, you write uh, an action show, I say, no, I write a character show with action. Right. There's a yeah. big difference. So we had material that we could mold into so many different directions, and we did. But it was a combined effort. I, I wish I could sit here and say, oh, yes, it was all about the writing. It, it, it was not all about the writing. The show would not have been successful without the writing, but we would not have been successful without the directors and the actresses and the people Everybody. who worked in the crew. Yeah, without it a production really team that could do more than just deliver on the action sequences. Yeah. But we also understood that. that in between those action sequences, there had to be heart, there had mm -hmm. to be intelligence. And it had to be a it had to be yep. something yep. people could relate to. Yeah, and action and by itself is boring. That is absolutely true. After a while, you're anesthetized to it. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, there's another kick. Wow, what a nice angle, you know. But you're not involved in. You don't care about the people who are kicking or being kicked or whatever. You yeah. have to care about them. Even the even the video game world has figured that that lesson out. Mm -hmm. And all those first-person shooter games are movies. <laughs> well, know? yeah, it's interesting because I play the action sequence, but then you get actual movie pieces. Yeah. You know? And I was um, uh, a long time ago, I was hired by a company to actually chart a game that they wanted to produce for um, this will really date me, uh, the Sega Genesis platform. Mm -hmm. What they wanted to do was try to turn it into a more cinematic experience. So right. I had to actually not just write a flow chart, write a story around a flow chart. And I'd never done a flowchart in the first place. And a flowchart, as you probably know, every character has to make pivotal decisions. And whatever their decision is on that point sends them in a different direction. Right. But the flowchart has to have common points where they all those threads can come back together. Otherwise, you're just basically charting too many threads. Right. So to do this, it was all a first-person shooter. And I said the first thing we have to concentrate on character. And that's difficult because... You are not showing a character to an audience. You're asking them to be the character. And you're talking about millions of people who have different personalities. Mm -hmm. And everybody kind of understood it. 
But then I said, okay, the first thing I have to decide is how to tell whether it's a male or female gamer. And that stopped the room. <laughs> Why does that matter? <laughs> well, yeah, and that's, that's, a, that's such a common myth. Um, but that was, they said, why does that matter? Mm. And I said, really? You don't think that affects every decision you make? Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit. So we came up with a, um, um, it wasn't an original idea. Actually, I think uh, Infocom had done a version of this way back in their games. But um, I opened it up with an emergency happening. And there was, I basically mentioned, uh, it wasn't exactly this, but it was the same idea two doors that you had to really quickly go in there and you wake up and you've got to go to the bathroom real quick. One door said men, one door said women. Whichever door you pick, determine what your gender was Bam, going to be for the know. rest of the day. Yeah. And I tried to make it very innocuous so that it would be just a natural decision. It wasn't one somebody like sitting, oh, I'm going to do that. And if they did, then fine. We have a you know transgendered action hero and I think that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, would be awesome. It's awesome if somebody did it, but oh well. <laughs> That's amazing. It, it, the way I view writing for video games, it's like those old choose-your-own-adventure books. Yeah. You remember those? From, they were yeah, huge in those. the 80s. Uh, it was actually a TV did. series where they tried to do a POV character. It was a police series, half hour, and the camera was the character. It did not last long. Because really what you're doing is you're saying that character is useless. Because the, the co-star, the actual star of the show... You go to a murder scene, yeah, what's this? And they'd look at the camera and say, uh, I agree. I think it looks like blood, too. <laughs> and you as the audience wow. at home are like, I wasn't thinking that. I thought it kind of looked like a puppy dog. You know? It's one of those, those uh, tests that you take at the psychology office. Come yeah. on. It was a noble attempt, but I think it was trying to ride a certain wave that people wanted to take advantage of. Television does that a lot. That whatever the current wave is, let's turn that into a TV series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's one of the you know evolutionary processes for television. You've got to take those chances. Sometimes they work. Well, we need to we need to wrap up the conversation a little bit. Um, okay. You're you're I, I was waiting writing, to get into the interview. Yeah. <laughs> this is <laughs> you. Uh, you're you're, been, you're writing a novel right now. Right? I am uh, amazingly enough uh, entering into that world. Yes, um, within the next three months, I'll have three books out. Wow. Which, yeah, kind of surprises me. One of you them. You don't do anything half-assed. Yeah. <laughs> you should have one at the end of the week, right? No, I, I full-ass it. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I have a graphic novel, which is coming out. That's co-written by Kevin J. Anderson and myself. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know who Kevin J. Anderson is, Google him. You will be quite surprised. He's one of the top sci-fi writers in yeah. the in the world. He's got like 63 million books sold worldwide. He. Uh, he and Brian Herbert write all the Dune sequels from the Frank Herbert books. Um, Kevin has uh, several of his own books. That are, he did the X-Files interpretation. Uh, he, he and his wife um, created the series of books Jedi Academy. Mm -hmm. George Lucas asked him to come up with something. That's what they came up with. Um, he's got so much material. Uh, his new thing, Dan Shamble, about a zombie PI, which is hysterical. And it, um, it's not just because Kevin is a friend of mine. Really, go out and read that one. It is, it's really hysterical. Um, I met Kevin 15 years ago on a panel and we just hit it off so we started talking about projects we could do and we came up with a few ideas and he was going to fly out here uh, so we could go and pitch and one of the ideas we discussed was something that became the graphic novel 
But because he'd never worked in Hollywood, he said, I know nothing about that business. So I had kept a whole compilation of all these question and answers that people had asked me online or for advice and everything. I just kept it in a file. You have like a huge library of just stuff you keep, don't I, you? I, I'm, yeah, that's a nice way of saying I'm a hoarder, which is true. <laughs> so I just sent him all of this stuff. And so when he came out, we started working on this TV series idea called Stalag X. We didn't sell it, but we did turn it into a graphic novel. Yeah. And it's had kind of a tortured past, but we finally ended up with um, Gestalt Publishing, which is the uh, an independent publisher out of Australia, very highly regarded. They they do very elite projects, and that will the first issue will start sometime in the next month or so. It's six issues digitally downloaded, but in October there will be a uh, a tree flesh version in brick and mortar stores of the first three issues, and Stalag X is a futuristic concentration camp. Uh, during an alien war of genocide where basically people are wiping each other out with these aliens, nobody takes prisoners, and yet our lead character ends up at a prisoner of war camp that should not even exist because nobody takes prisoners. So there's a reason behind this. And that, before we even got any part of it published, I took our galleys and our initial story, and I took it onto my side of the business, and we're already working with two or three production companies actively pushing that as either a feature or a TV series. I've already been awesome. taking meetings and networks for that. Very cool. So is that's that, Is that out. like one of the new trends in Hollywood is to take graphic novels? And I think so. It's, yeah. it's an, yes, it is, and it's because there's a number of factors to that. The internet has allowed people to, to turn their garage comics into more popular venues. Mm -hmm. Also, it's the short attention span theater that a lot of people in the business have. I don't have time to read your presentation. Or yours. Oh, look, pretty pictures. I can read the pictures. So they like looking at a graphic novel. But with Kevin's background and with my background, I was able to place it with certain people who could actually give it a legitimate look. And the response was enthusiastic. We're still doing that. I'm still meeting with networks over that one. Um, at the same time, because that was coming out, Kevin, who owns Wordfire Press, which is a publishing company in itself, mm -hmm. Kevin appears at all these conventions around the country. And he brings his Wordfire writers, because a lot of people have written for his, his uh, press. So they invited me to go to Denver Comic Con uh, and hang out there. And I'm kind of like, well, we don't even have a comic book for me to sign yet. So I can just kind of stand there and say, oh, I'm the guy you don't know who I am, but I'm sitting here. This is great. <laughs> but I'm like, ooh, cosplayers, camera, I'm in. So I met another author there who has worked with Kevin named Peter J. Wax. And Peter's written a whole bunch of books. And he and I hit it off. And then Peter said, we should work on something together. Sure, what do you think? Well, we started discussing things, and that evolved into a novel um, called Villainy, or Villainy, depending on how you want to say it, which is our first novel that will be coming out uh, probably in December. And that's the beginning of a three-volume set, which also creates a world where we already have anthologies being worked on for it. And in fact... One of the anthology short stories will actually be published before we even have the novel published. That was written by Mark Ryan. Uh, it'll be in a, a compilation of books about a purple unicorn. When I get the title, I'll, I'll announce it. Uh, and it's an awesome little story. But that is the story of an alternate future where superheroes and supervillains exist. And sometime in the 1980s, they started showing up. And nobody knows exactly what, what has caused that. You'll just suddenly realize you have superpowers. And because you are either a superhero or you're a supervillain, depending on what your choices are, 
Um, if you're a superhero, you are actually mandated by certain laws that the government had to pass. There are certain mandates you're allowed to intervene in and others you cannot. There are legislative responsibilities. And in fact, superheroes were almost outlawed until companies contributed to a super fund to pay insurance costs. <laughs> and the companies that contributed to that super fund became sponsors of the superheroes. So they're basically all sponsored. <laughs> and the normal people like us, we hate them because they're supers. We hate them. They're so privileged. They're so elite with their superpowers. But man, we wear the t-shirts. We buy the merchandising. We have our favorites. It's like living on the fast lane of a NASCAR track. Mm -hmm. The supervillains, of course, are out for their own stuff. But that's just the world. What the story is actually about is this one college student. And she just wants to finish college. But she has so many issues in her life, and she is pissed off at the world. She's angry with her parents. She's angry with choices she's had to make. She has an inner anger that, that we've actually realized is a voice that she can talk to. And then one day, she just snaps. And when she snaps, she's in the middle of this battle between two of the supers, a superhero and a supervillain. And she goes so pissed off, she takes them down. Now people are wondering, who is this person? And because of the fact that she has also issues with her, her, her gender identification, she dresses in a way that people think, well, it must be a guy. So they think it's a new superhero, a new supervillain who has all these powers, but he's not affiliated himself yet. He hasn't announced who he is. I don't even know his name. Mm -hmm. Who's sponsoring him? Is he a villain or is he a vigilante? Who is this superhero and who is he? He's not a he. He's a she. And she's just a college student. And she's just pissed off. She has no powers. <laughs> so our series is all about her, and she discovers a larger conspiracy that's involved with this entire world, and that's what the story lays out to be. So that's what villainy is about. Now, that sounds fantastic. Those are the two books. <laughs> Remember when I mentioned that I sent all those files and everything to Kevin? Mm -hmm. Kevin read through those files, and it's basically just advice about my experience in the business. And he said, "Why don't you publish this?" And I said, oh, there's not enough there to publish. And he said, do a word count. So I did a word count. It was like 56,000 words. And I said, see, that's not enough. And he pulls a book off my shelf and he goes, this is 40,000 words. <laughs> so that was about 10 years ago. And I hemmed and hawed and hemmed and hawed. And finally, when I started working with Peter, Peter is actually the managing editor for Wordfire now. Peter read my files and he turned to me and he said, I'm going to publish this. You might as well do your own rewrite. <laughs> so I did, and that will be coming out pretty soon. The title of that one, and I wanted to change the title, but they love the title, is the non-user-friendly guide for aspiring television writers. I think that's great. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> and it's not, I, it is not a book on teaching you how to write. I want to make sure people understand that it is not an academic book. It is, as, as was quoted to me, it's as if you're sitting down with Stephen for lunch and you just want to ask him advice, but you don't want to watch him eat. So kind of like what we just did here. Pretty much yeah. this. Yeah. And some of the things I actually told you are actually in that book because they are experiences. And I, and I break for what I call anecdote time because it's a question and answer format. People saying everything from how do I get an agent to what do I wear in a meeting. And I just give my experience. It doesn't mean that I'm always correct, but I'm telling you what my experience was so you can call on it. But I break it up with little anecdotes for my life, and I, I, I tell people you don't have to read the anecdotes. You're not going to be quizzed on this. It's a diversion that you can get back to the questions anytime. So that, yeah, that'll be coming out in about a month or so. Excellent. Now, <laughs> no, now with three weird. books coming out, I mean, how do you 
divide your time and your brain power in figuring out how, well, do you sit down one day and go, okay, today's the day I'm going to work on this or... Well, that'll be the subject of Stephen L. Sears' The Reality Show, uh, <laughs> which I live every day. Um, I mean, did they? Did you cover that in, in your third book there? Or? Uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's kind of like time maintenance, which I'm really horrible at. Um, I think it's funny that uh, I think Kevin Anderson actually did write an entire book on how to deal with that. I don't have a structure. Mm-hmm. So... I have a job jar list of so many things to do, and sometimes I get a little frustrated because I feel like I should be doing that. When I'm, in fact, doing this, so it's not like I'm losing time. I also have a habit of sometimes my mind constantly has to be simulated. So I used to do a thing which I call link surfing. You know, you bring up a page on the computer, and, oh, there's a link, click. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, there's another link, click. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, there's another link, click. Oh, I didn't want to see that. Click, you know. And you just, suddenly the, the time is flying by. Yep. So... Um, I, I find myself doing the same thing. It, it's educational, at least. <laughs> um, I'm not a structured writer because I never learned to write. That's a key. Uh, remember I mentioned Babs Grahowski and I mentioned Tom Lundquist okay, 30 years ago. Today, they are still my best friends. We hang out. We do things together. Uh, Babs and I will travel together, which is really hysterical. In this day and age... She and I travel together, and we have to lie so that we can get separate rooms. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We, we like to stay at bed and breakfasts, and they're like, well, why would you stay in the same room? So we had to make up this whole thing. Well, we're cousins. <laughs> How strange is that? We have to lie so we can get separate rooms. <laughs> but, but both of them have become so close, um, uh, as far as friends are concerned, <clears throat> that... Um, uh, I have understood now what their writing styles are. And I can write with either one of them, which, by the way, is very difficult to find a partner you can write with. Babs is a very structured writer. She learned how to write. And she plays chess in her mind. She'll be sitting there staring at the computer screen. And she'll, as far as I can tell, she comes up with some dialogue. And then in her mind, she actually charts everywhere that will take her. Then backs it up, changes it, does the exam. And I walk by her office. She kind of self-edits. She does, but she's thinking so far ahead. She's thinking 30, 40 pages down she the road. Is. Right? And I, I walk by her office, and she's just sitting there staring at the screen. Now, me, I'm different. <laughs> I'll be in the hallway talking to the assistants. I'll be playing bowling by setting up pins and using a hamster ball without the hamster to <laughs> knock down the pins. I'm out there just having a great time, and then all of a sudden I go, I got to go. And I, I have to sit down, and it just pours out. And I go into the you zone. And you gotta yeah. go I've got to do it. And it's a zone for me. Suddenly, time disappears. I'm apparently an incredibly fast typist, but I don't know that. <laughs> I do know that back when we used Selectric 2 IBMs, I kept breaking them because I'm in this zone. And I will forget to eat. I will forget to do all sorts of things. And then suddenly, it's dark outside, and I come out of it. But I don't sit there and structure everything. It just happens mm-hmm. so it's it's a i don't recommend that for anybody but the bottom line <laughs> is but, like the truth the matter, but the truth of the matter is if that's where you go it's where you have to go right yeah. that's yeah. your yeah, I find when, you, know, you have when to I find f- what works for you and yeah. then get in that groove and exactly exactly yeah like, once i get started writing anything it's like my best ideas come to me at like two three four o'clock in the morning and it's yes. only because i've been writing since six o'clock that evening and it's like, uh-huh. well, well it's also because you don't get up until noon that's yeah. that true. <laughs> when I was I was married for a short time uh, to a wonderful person. I don't have any horrible ex-wife stories to tell. She's she's great. 
Um, she learned that when we would go anywhere, she would keep a little pen and pad in her purse because we could be somewhere and I would just go, oh, give me, give me, give me, give me. Got to have it. And I would just write down something that popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, used to, <laughs> I used to keep a notepad next to my bed because sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night with brilliance. There you go. Until I would read it in the morning, it was all scribbles. <laughs> so then I thought, okay, I bought a little tape recorder. Yeah. Put that next to my bed. So And a brilliant idea popped up. Recorded it. Next morning, I listened to it, and it's, okay, face uh, a small toad. <laughs> and so what I realized is, you know what? Ideas will always happen if you're open to them. You put down what you can, write it down, remember it, but don't feel like, oh, my God, I've got to do this now or else it'll never happen again. If that's your mode and that's your creativity, it's always going to come to you. The world is, is, a, is so rich with stories, if you ask the right questions, right. instead of just accepting what you're seeing, ask why is that so? You know, I, I refer to it as either turning the world on its side or looking backwards when you walk. Photographers, really good photographers do this. They know that when people walk down a path, they see everything in front of them, and then they don't care about what's behind them because they're only interested in seeing what's in front of them. But if you turn and walk backwards, you see so many things that you missed. And that's where a lot of my great, you know, great photos, but the, the best photos come from doing something like that. You know, it's, I, I tell, I've told this story about, I will go to places like, um, like where we are right now at a coffee shop, and I will look at people and I will make up stories about them. I love doing that. It's well, great. that's what my dad used to do with me when, we were, when I was little. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we'd be at LAX waiting for my mom to fly yeah. back from the Philippines. And we would sit for four hours waiting for her to come through immigration. And that's what we would do. We would just watch people walking by and we try to tell yep. each other what the story is, where they're going, yep. where they've come from, why they're in such a rush, or, you know, why do they like to eat sauerkraut instead of this? Why are they so pissed off? This, yeah. You know? and, and with me, and this will, give you, this will give you an idea of how my mind works. Uh, and I've used this exact example um, in other discussions. So it, if anybody listening to this and they've heard me say this before, but it's, it's a true thing about me. Uh, I'll watch two people in a public place, and let's say that they're having a heated discussion. And one of them is, um, you know, holding a, a donut, and the other one's holding a cup of coffee. And the person holding the donut is using the donut to emphasize, you know, pointing with the donut. And I'm thinking, okay, what are they talking about? Are they talking about the donut? Are they talking about the coffee? Are they angry at each other? Okay, this person, let's say this person has... Um, has discovered that the other person is, uh, is cheating on them. And um, that person is denying it absolutely. And they, they want to keep their voices down because and now I'm manufacturing a whole backstory about who they are and their mm-hmm. characters. Once I get to a certain point with that set in my mind, I say, okay, now I'm going to tell the story from the donuts perspective. <laughs> That's how my mind works. That's fantastic. And the donuts perspective is, oh my God, don't drop me. Yeah. Oh my God, don't that's, drop that's me. That sugar, that sugar, that sugar. <laughs> One of you eat me or just sit down or whatever. But I, that coffee's hot. That coffee's hot. Don't do it. But you see, that's how my mind works because yeah. the obvious is even to create that story, to continue on that story. But there's a part of my mind that will even interject itself and say, okay, you're telling the story as we expect to hear the story told. What about this? Mm-hmm. That's interesting what you're telling there. But you know what? Ask the stupid question. Because right. the stupid question is really entertaining. So, I mean, that's, that's how my mind works in all my stories. So, in addition to the novels, um, anything on television or film-wise that you're working on? Um, nothing right now. Uh, as I said, Stalag X is going through the cycle of, of possibly ending up. 
Um, I'm going to do that with all of my projects. Um, you know, when villainy is a certain point, I want to try to take that into the, um, the film television arena. We're already uh, looking at graphic novels for that one as well. Uh, it, it, like I could tell you a list of things that are going on, but honestly, I consider that... Um, yeah, you don't not, want to talk about it yet. Well, it's not so much that you don't want to talk about it, because I'm not a, you know, I don't believe in superstition and jinxing. Um, you know, knock on wood, I don't believe it. But there's a thing here, I refer to it as waiter talk, and I was a waiter. And it's like when you go to a restaurant here in L.A., and you just happen to say to the waiter, oh, are you an actor? And they say, oh, yes, in fact, I'm being considered for Spielberg's next war picture, and I've got, you know, James Cameron is looking at my stuff for this thing here. And you're like, yeah, I just actually just want some more coffee. <laughs> <laughs> because everybody has that story right. and it's all talk because quite honestly yeah you could take your scripts and you could send it to the offices for steven spielberg and technically yeah you as far as you know your script is being considered right but everybody has that story so with me even with the story about uh Stalag x being pursued for film or television that is actively happening but I don't have a television deal with it yet. I don't have a film deal with it. So what I, what I remind people is that even though the activity is legitimate, only thing I know for a fact is that I have a graphic novel that is being published, and you'll be able to read that. Mm -hmm. So I don't tend to talk about all the other stuff, which I don't have contracts for. Yeah. Right. Because anything can happen right up to the moment that it's I have, signed. Until, I until something is signed. Where, yeah, yeah, I've had so many times that you are the guy. You are the guy. Let's get you in here next Monday. We're going to dot, dot, dot. That's and it's been my gone. entire summer. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that because I really thought you were the guy. That's been my entire summer. By the way. And the uh, last couple of days, that's the stuff I've alluded to the last couple of days have been kind of rough. You are wearing an awesome yeah. shirt, though. I have to say that. He's oh, wearing yeah. an I Survive Sharknado shirt, <laughs> which is awesome because I have a lot of friends who, who basically hover around that like sharks around a tornado. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> This has been a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, oh, thanks you. for taking the time to, to chat. Oh, sure. Us. No, absolutely. Um, I appreciate um, I appreciate you coming out here to uh, to chat with me. Yeah, yeah so. it's been great, and it's yeah. been a lot longer than I think you yeah. probably anticipated. Sorry about that. I get a little verbagey at times. So. <laughs> well, now you're a natural storyteller, and and yeah. it's um, it's apparent in talking to you, and it's apparent from having seen your work. Thank you. And uh, it's been a, it's been a real honor getting to, to sit and chat with you. Well, the, the, I only uh, have one more question. Um, if you want to plug any charities or um, special causes that you believe in, that you want to say, you know what, go out and and maybe donate or donate your time. Okay. Let me, uh, if you don't mind, let me do a couple of minutes on that. Sure. What you can't see here is that I've been holding this microphone and I have a tendency to turn it so I have the cable completely wrapped around the side here. So, so if you hear rustling well, sound... It looks like I'm, you're playing a piccolo. I, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All the people that are here at the uh, coffee shop, they're like, oh, that poor man, he has that device attached to his chin. <laughs> there we go. If you felt dizzy out there in audience land, I just unraveled you, so I thank Shwage your life. Um, it's a twister. It's a it's twister. twister. Yo, Sharknado. So... Now, let me say something about that. Um, I, I do have a, a scholarship which I endowed at Florida State University. Okay, I just say that up, up off the bat. And if, if somebody wants to find that, Google Stephen L. Sears, Florida State scholarship, you'll find it. Uh, but I'm a huge believer in charity. I'm a huge believer in giving back. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I am humbled by are people who give um, to their charities to any charity, uh, and I want to I want to do a special shout out for Xenofans. 
I have to do this. I've never run into an established group that is so incredibly giving. They have been responsible. Keep in mind, though, the show has been off the air for 14 years. It's been that long? Off the air for 14 years. We still have conventions. In fact, we're finally having what is supposed to be the last convention, which we've had one every year. It's it's in February, and I just actually got my official invite uh, to appear at it. And one of the mainstays of that convention is is the charity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hudson Like, who was always dressed in an incredibly sexy outfit, she auctions off her dress at the convention during her time on stage. Um, Brittany Powell, another one of our actresses, through an accident of of her being on stage and a funny thing that happened, she ended up auctioning off her bra. (laughs) Now, every year, she auctions off her bra, you know, for, um, for, for her uh, uh, charities. And the fans are so willing to give for this that you just have to get up there with these fans and you say, I have something I believe in. And, and the money will flow in. Or, or people will say, I can help with that. It is amazing to see when this happens spontaneously. Um, like using Britney's bra as an example. That was a total accident that that happened. She was, she could see a little lace out of one of her dresses and she said, oh, I better hide that. And somebody at the back yelled, 100. <laughs> and she said, are you serious? And they, somebody said, 200. And she looked around. It was her first time on stage. And I was, I hadn't, Britney actually worked there. Um, she was on Xena uh, toward the end. I had left after mm-hmm. five, and a, five and a half seasons. So I didn't work directly with her. So I'm just standing off stage taking photos. And I said, they want you to auction off the bra. And she said, seriously? And, and somebody said, do you have a charity? And she did. And so she just started toying with them. I think that one went for like $5,000 or something like that. <laughs> oh, my God. They've been responsible for over twenty to $25 million going to charities. Wow. It's, it's the most humbling thing I've ever seen. Um, when we would have auction charities, and we still do have auction charities at the conventions, we auctioned one of our earlier auctions. We auctioned off for charity a uh, chakra, which was the weapon that Xena used. Mm-hmm. And this was a wooden one. We had two styles. We had a metal one that was a show one, which she could hold it up and it was flashy. Then the one she threw, which was actually made of wood, otherwise she would kill someone. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we had one of those. We put it on stage to be auctioned off. We were backstage and they were giving us reports on what the auction was. It went up to $8,900 for a charity. I think I actually saw that one. Well, then we auctioned off a prop sword at a later convention, almost $40,000 for that. Wow. Now, I hear people out there who will say, those idiots, $40,000 for a prop sword? Are you kidding? And I respond this way. I say, when you can donate $40,000 to any charity for any reason, you have a right to talk. But until then, shut up. It's not like this person was an idiot. They knew full well that's just a prop sword. But they knew that it was giving. Right. And, um, and, and so I encourage this with everybody. On, on my website, which, by the way, is, is just kind of really has mostly photographs on it. Um, I'm revamping it. I have a thing about my scholarship. But I say that's the cause I believe in. You have to have a cause. I don't care who you, who you um, or what cause you actually support. Please support something. That's how we survive in this world. We see too much of people saying what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. I'm going to hold on to whatever I can. And that is not what humanity is about. So I, I'm very passionate about this. I, I think that everybody has a cause. 
and the mistake people believe is that they can't make a difference. I only have a few dollars. A few dollars can change somebody's I, life. I mm -hmm. donate a lot, and I don't have a lot. I'm unemployed, but I still donate a dollar or two yes. dollars because it matters. Exactly. It does matter. And even people who gripe, well, when I do it online, they're constantly sending me, you know, they want stuff. Well, yeah, that's how they work. But, you know, the question is if, if you put in a few dollars and you can help somebody with a situation, I'll take the spam email for that. Right. You know, there's a whole there's a whole dunking thing that's going on right now, the dowsing for ALS. The ALS. Yeah. I'm actually very disappointed in a lot of people who are upset at that. Yeah, they think, too. oh, these are sheep. These are just sheep following. They've raised $30 million? So <laughs> yeah. You know something? And it's fine that these are sheep and have money and they and want to do they that. they raised but something like over $5 million like, or $6 million in one day. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's a trend. It's a fun thing for people to do, but they are donating money. And most of the, the vast majority of people aren't cheap. They're not saying, oh, gosh, I'm just going to do this because my favorite actor did. It is fun to do it. They get their little moment in fame on the internet, but they know full well what it's for. Yeah. So for people who say, well, you don't need to do that. You could just donate. Yeah, we have that system and not enough people do. Yeah, well, it's really hard because I work with charities and <laughs> um, it's really hard to get your message up above the noise. Sure. There's, there's so much noise with the internet and television and radio, so many messages bombarding people constantly, finding something unique that maximizes on everybody's desire to have their 15 seconds yeah. of fame, it was brilliant. Yeah. The, and, it's the made, and then calling everybody else brilliant. out on it. Yeah, it's yeah. been brilliant because it, it feeds ego to spread the message. And they don't have to do anything. They, they got it the started, yeah. and now they can right. sit back and let that money come in. It's, one, mean, of the most, have, it's have, one of the most successful yeah. and it's a brilliant, brilliant campaign. campaigns I've seen and in years. I love and how fun is it to, to actually dunk one of your friends? Yeah. I've been waiting for someone to challenge me. My 17-year-old <laughs> sister just did it. Yeah. She didn't call me out, though. I'm like, what? I wanted to <laughs> get all that stuff there. Well, you see, and, and that's the kind of example of, of the greatness that people are can aspire to, that they can do something like that and they can enjoy it and have fun with mm -hmm. it. But then there's that dark side that I'm seeing now, which are people that are ridiculing it and criticizing it. And even, you know, we're having a drought here in Southern California. And people are holding on to that saying you shouldn't do it because there's a drought here. You're wasting water. Okay, this is not the Sudan. <laughs> if you want to talk about where water is truly, truly precious, okay, here, yes, we have, a, we have a drought. And I water my lawn. I cut back five years ago because I saw the drought. My lawn in my backyard is sand. Right. I made that decision. But I have not stopped taking showers. Right. I have not stopped drinking water. You know, we decide what we can do with that. So I will put it this way. If you have a choice between contributing to a cure for a deadly disease and paying for three gallons of water, I'm sorry, what is more valuable to you? Yeah. Right. So stop with the criticisms on that. These are people who are giving. I don't care if you want but to make fun of them or not. But it's, it's the Internet. Bitching and moaning about but stuff on the internet. Unfortunately, I have to say there are kind of the people, second nature of the internet. So. Well, there are a few people that I do know as human beings through the internet, and I've been disappointed in their reaction to it. Yeah. So for me, me too. And I've posted a, I've posted a number of things the last couple of days. Yeah. Saying, you know, look, you might bitch about it, but look what it's done. This is what it's done. Well, that's what I said about the forty thousand dollars sword. Yeah. It's like okay, donate the money, and then you can ridicule someone. Yeah. But until you yeah. do that, you know, you don't shut up. Exactly. <laughs> Who are you helping? Right. You know, it's like you're bitching actually yeah, curing anybody? you want to donate quietly and that's your prerogative, donate yeah. quietly. These people want to do it this way. That's I different. think that what they're upset about is that they had $40,000 to give to a charity. 
maybe. Yeah. I don't know, but and that they the other person did not, and it's like it's everybody yeah. always finds the unhappiness somewhere because they're not happy themselves. And I also think that um, that with all the causes you can give to, a lot of people look at that as white noise. There's so much out there. Everybody's asking me to give to a cause, and that's why I keep repeating: give to something. Yeah. Don't sit there and say, oh, if I give to this one, I'm ignoring that one. No, think of it as this. I'm giving to this one. Yeah. Look in your own life and think about things that affected you and say, how can I help that? My scholarship is not going to save lives. It's not. I know that. What my scholarship was designed for was when I was in college, I basically went through three years of classes. It took me five years to do it. I got a loan. My parents helped me as they could. But basically, I had to keep stopping to go and work to make money for my incidentals and go back. So it took me five years to finish three years of school. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that's really horrible that somebody would have to interrupt their school you know, when they want to get through it and get to their life. So my scholarship was designed to help undergraduate students in the arts, because the arts are really suffering these days as far as funding, to help them um, go smoothly through so they would have money for their incidentals. They would be able to pay their rent. That's what it was designed for. Now, the argument to that is like, you're not saving lives. No, I'm not. I chose to enrich lives. I like mm -hmm. That doesn't mean my charity is any less than anybody else's. But it also does not mean that because I have any kind of celebrity status, mine's more important than anyone else. Right. So pick something. There's got to be something in your life that you say, wow, I, I wish I could change that. One dollar can change it. And, that's, and obviously, this is a soapbox for me because I just think there's, for us to be the, the richest nation on the planet... And people are hungry here. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a military family. I said this before. I'm extremely proud of our military. Now, it doesn't mean I'm a war hawk. People who have watched sedans driving slowly down a street on a military base, you are not a war hawk. You know the cost of war. You know the necessity of defense, but you understand the cost of war. Right. So I'm very proud of the fact that we have a military which is a colossus. You know, there's nothing in history that it compared to our military. We can project our force and our goodness and our aid around the world almost instantly. You can argue about whether it's good or bad. Okay, I'm proud of that. But when can I be proud that no one in my country starves? When can I be proud that everybody in my country has access to health care? When can I be happy and proud of the fact that my country leads the world in education? Because until I'm proud of all those things, I really don't know what my military is defending. We have the power to change that. We have the power to improve that. But Everybody wants to slough it off on someone else. So, sorry, that was my soapbox friend. I, I <laughs> went like out of the said, comedy realm. You know, you take baby steps in your life. Yeah. And exactly. it's a baby step. You always move forward. You know, be proud of that. Giving is an incredible thing. Anyway. Well, Stephen, again, it's, <laughs> it's an honor to sit and chat with you. Um, well, we do you. have to wrap this up because we've got to get across town for another <laughs> sorry. interview. I know. And... Okay. Um, you know, maybe we can uh, have you back on in a, in a few months down the road and see where, where yeah, things are at with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, after your books have been published and come back and talk about how they're doing. And sure, we can talk about the person who read them. <laughs> if we can track <laughs> them down. So I'll make sure I'm here. All right. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Thank, Thank you. Thank you again.